0: my curves, my curves, just to uh, show you what they mean, that's the first one. And actually, I maintain it's a line of all things human, of our lives, of anything that we create, whether it's a business, an organization, a government, an empire even. You have a bit of investment at the start, training, education, money, whatever. Money gets things going.
1: That's Charles Handy. He is one of the all-time greats of organizational philosophy. And here he's talking about one of his fundamental ideas, the second curve.
0: It takes time, and then you are successful for time, whatever success means in your world. But then everything peaks and goes down. Uh, Your life, everything, everything that I know. Of course, that's very depressing.
1: Come on, Charles. I've told you before, if I invite you onto a podcast, you can't bring the mood down. You can't depress the listeners within the first two minutes of the show.
0: But, 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 but.
1: No buts, Charles. Carry on. Lighten the mood.
0: To get out of this depression, you can have a second curve. Of course, the snag is you have to start the second curve before the first one peaks in order to cover that dip of investment at the beginning. And of course, at the moment where you have to start the second curve, that's when you think everything is fine. And so the status quo is the enemy of new thinking. It's the enemy of the second
1: curve. Charles, you just can't do it, can you? Enough of that. A lot of people go through life trying to stick onto a course that they charted when they were young, right? But to really hit an inflection point, you have to know when to hit the accelerator and when to break into a new curve. And this episode is about a man who has consistently engineered second curves in his life. You'll learn how he thinks about growth and how to make decisions as you find your second curve. And I promise, Charles Handy won't be back. You're listening to Inflection Point, the show that tells the stories of how B2B SaaS market has changed the growth rate of their companies and the lessons that we can all learn from them. I'm Mark Thomas, I'm head of growth at Powered by Search and I'm pumped that you're here. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts okay on with the show a lot of people who turn out to be innovative or creative adults have a similar experience in their early lives now while other kids are happy sitting in the sand pit or eating glue they're just curious about everything more often than not there's a role model a character of influence, or someone else, encouraging them to be creative and to explore their world. Now, for Pete Caputa, that role was played by his parents.
2: Yeah, I think it comes from my dad. He'd he'd always ask he'd always ask me what I think, and he was a real sharp dude. We always worked at cool companies that made things like the Amtrak rail cars.
1: Pete's the CEO of DataBox, a startup who are on a mission to make it easy as possible for everyone in a company to monitor, analyze, and improve performance in one spot on any device.
2: He worked at a company called Bud Company that made those. He worked at a company called Heister Yale that makes forklifts. they one of the largest forklift companies. And he'd work in the area, oftentimes, where you're building a prototype or um, designing something. And so I remember one time, it was probably ninth or 10th grade, so this wasn't too young, but he brought home drawings of the of a future forklift, which doesn't sound that fancy, but they were cool looking forklifts. And they actually are what they've made, like very close to the design of them now. And he's like, what do you think of design? He's like, you can talk to the engineer if you want. I didn't. But I do remember my dad just always asking me those questions. And he was very mechanical. He built her home. And I got to watch that and pick up nails and run drill holes and run wires through the walls and stuff like that to so the menial jobs and but i i got to always learn new things and and so i think he was just always asking me what i thought and it just always made me think and i think now it's just like beat into my brain of what do i think how does this work or how can these two things combine or what's a cool thing you could build with that
1: like pete's my own parents always encouraged me to innovate and follow my curiosity In fact, my father has made his career on helping organizations to manage innovation, so I totally recognize the feeling. You know, the feeling of looking at a problem and saying, what if this could be that? But here's the difficulty. It's hard to balance your desire to innovate with your own patience when you're not near the strategy.
2: All of my life, I've wanted to be the one that drives the strategy and I worked at a really big company out of school for six years and I was like nowhere near the strategy. And it was just frustrating, like just doing what I was asked to do or told to do. And I got to work on R and D projects and cool stuff, but it was never anything of my decision. And and so that I started my own business and I had all the right, all decisions, but I made all the wrong ones in that company. We spent a lot of years on it, but it didn't really work out financially. I then joined HubSpot, where I was early enough and close enough to the leadership to actually have an influence on many of the
1: decisions. And he definitely did influence many decisions. In fact, while he worked at HubSpot, Pete was one of the people who drove the development of their agency partner model, the model where agencies would be rewarded for driving channel sales effectively for HubSpot. And that was a massive customer acquisition tool for the brand. And one of the things that made it into their IPO portfolio in 2017 It's actually something that's working for Databox too. Here's Pete to say more about how Databox acquires customers through agencies.
2: We made it possible for agencies to create multiple client accounts at once through one form. So previously they had to go in and like enter the client's name, client's email address, and that's it. But then they'd have to do that five times and so we just made a simpler form with like client name. And we actually eliminated the need for the email address. Cause that was other feedback. They didn't want to enter their client email. And we just, it's just a simple form, enter the client's name. And then well, we can do 10 at once now, I think on a form. So that skyrocketed the number of clients that agencies were adding. Like that little stupid thing was preventing them from adding clients to the system, a large, much larger portion. More recently of our new users are trying our Google sheets integration. But it's relatively complex because again because people don't format their google sheets very well and so we're going to build something that like walks them through how to do that in the app
1: one of the things that i find most intriguing about pete is that he went from a fairly glorious position as a major character in the hubspot ipo one day to working out what was kind of a small startup the next i mean that literally happened overnight he went from public company one day to a startup the next morning. To me it's
2: more about building something. I always had financial goals in life and I still have financial goals that I haven't achieved, but I don't they're not the same. I have my basics covered in life based on the success from HubSpot. Now it's much more about the puzzle for me, the puzzle of building something valuable. <laughs> of course I'll do fine when that happens, but but it's more about building something that's unique and Solves real problems, and, and people love. Like I want to build something that people love. I think, I think my transition from engineer to sales to 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 running a company, running a sales org, to running a company is is just very. It was a very practical one. But I'd say that like, I'm still an engineer at heart, um, still very focused on on using numbers and math to to solve problems. The process of building out. A massive company in software is really—it's really a combination of media, software, and and services. And so you need those three things to to click. And so that's what excites me—is building out a large base of users, similar to the a media company thinks about building out a large base of impressions or an audience. And then building software that helps them do what they need to do or helps them do better. Uh, It just seems like it's just a massive opportunity. I think it's the biggest opportunity of my career and like for the next 10 years, at least until until the singularity and AI takes over everything.
1: The opportunity's big, right? So when he joined from HubSpot, Databox had only a couple of thousand in recurring revenue and and also a nascent business model. By the end of 2017, they were at $48,000 a month in MRR. That's solid growth already, right? But then between that time and the end of 2020, which is right before the world imploded, Pete took the MRR of Databox from 48k to 309k MRR. In that period, they hit several inflection points, growing revenue between 2019 and 2020
2: alone 30%. We had actually had heard about Databox when they raised their seed round, and I found it interesting. I think I even thought about reaching out, but never did. Cause they had some cool stuff that they had built but what they had the success they had was doing mobile analytics for large companies in fact they went and closed like $500,000 annual contracts before they even raised money and so when they raised money they were oversubscribed and actually limited ended up raising like 3.8 million at the same roughly the same time as they raised they recruited another CEO in the US cuz the founders are from Slovenia they literally flew over here with no plan and figured it out they spent about 3 million of that money by the time I got there and when I joined there was like a few hundred MRR
1: so they had a handful of customers. I'd always just assumed before I spoke to him that Pete was you know the CEO of Databox but also the founder but it turns out that that's not the case and that makes this story even wilder. Picture this you're the person who drove the idea of a business model that was one of the main reasons that HubSpot pulled off such a good IPO. And then you join a startup that has a few thousand dollars MRR, not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, just thousands. I always
2: pick like stupid hard businesses for some reason to scale. And I look around at some of the SaaS businesses that have scaled and have scaled like crazy. It's like they, it's usually a simple product at the right time. And of course, for every one of those that succeeds, there's probably a hundred that fails. But this one is hard. For a few reasons, so you know, I think you know...
1: There's a bunch of reasons why Databox should be a hard company to grow. Firstly, it's tough to build all the integrations you need. And if you're going to make it useful, you've really got to connect with a lot of tools. And it's not just at random either. You have to align the tools you connect with the business uses of your target customer. And then, even when you've done that, you've still got to make sure that your customers know how to use the integrations to get what they need. And you have to help them to avoid vanity metrics as best you can so that they see the ROI and continue to pay you. And then there's this one.
2: There's so many people out there that have the idea, I'm going to build a dashboard tool because I want a dashboard. I just talked to someone this morning. I won't name her name, but she's been at it for six years and she's doing a few hundred thousand of revenue and has maybe 100 or 200 customers or something like that. And three integrations. We have 70, so that wasn't easy. The other thing that makes it hard is that every customer comes in want has a, like by their, by the nature of our product is looking for a custom solution. So they come in, even though we build all those integrations out of the box, they want, there are people that want to visualize it a certain way. Might want to slice and dice the data a different way, might have data in a database or a spreadsheet, might want to push data from their own system via our, into our system via API. So like every user that will pay us something has some kind of unique thing that they're looking to solve. And so we have to spend time learning their system so that we can then help them implement it in our system. so that's
1: time consuming and hard to scale. Before we get on with the main story, I just want to dive in here to something that Pete's going to say. Let's head off into a quick sidebar. Hello there. You're listening to the Mark Thomas Marketing Tactics Radio Hour. And today we're with Pete Kabuda talking about organic growth and aggressive content sourcing strategies.
2: All of our growth is organic. The majority of our signups, we get a few thousand, about 5,000 signups a month. That comes from organic search. And we've grown our organic search through, as you probably have observed, aggressive blogging. We blog a lot. We've developed some unique processes where we crowdsource input from literally, at this point, literally tens of thousands of people for the content that we produce, whether that's a research report or, or an article.
1: He's not kidding. So scroll through one of the blog articles on Databox's site, and you'll see literally dozens of original sources that you've probably never heard of in each one. And these are human faces with names and quotes about their unique experiences. At some point, most content teams think about crowdsourcing opinions from their audience using Helper a reporter out, Harrow. But I only know of Databox who do so in such a unique and engineered way. They have a page on their help.databox.com subdomain called Partner Co-Marketing Opportunities. Now on that page, you'll see a seemingly endless list of articles that the team are planning to write, each with a link to a SurveyMonkey form where you can contribute your quote. And the trade-off is simple here. In exchange for a quick quote on a SurveyMonkey form, you get the opportunity of a backlink to your site from a high domain authority site, that's Databox. And Databox gets original quotes, data, and the opportunity for you to share their posts with your network, which broadens the opportunity for them to acquire new customers. It's an absolutely marvelous content play that I've never seen anyone else do, and it's totally free and utterly genius. Okay, back to the show. What's interesting about Databox is that they had a successful model of product-led growth, but then they added sales on top of that. Except it wasn't just on top. It, it, it kind of took over.
2: From the beginning, the founders and I and the, the key directors on the team have been all in on product-led growth and freemium model. They had a freemium model. When I joined, I made it a little more generous and made that a core piece of our go-to market. By having more robust integrations that are point and click, we were able to get users to onboard themselves. 2017, two-thirds of our customers bought without us talking to them. Now it's flipped where it's about two-thirds talk to somebody on sales and one-third do not book a sales call. And so we've added service layer on top of the self-serve product. We did it very incrementally. It wasn't like a decision we made decisively, say three years ago. It was like a series of decisions that we made that it, and, and not until recently, what even say that like we did it, because or we were doing it. It was, it came to me as, like, oh, we just did that. As opposed to like a, myth, a methodical decision. One of the first decisions, this wasn't mine. In fact, I thought it was silly at the beginning. Was to like invest in our knowledge base. Let me back up. We always had uh, a ticketing system. We we've used Help Scout for our ticketing system. So if a user ran into an issue or was confused by something, there's always a little button at the bottom that said you know start a ticket or open a ticket. So that was first, and we could see from that ticketing system that there was a lot of things to get confused about. And it's not so much that our product is complex; it's the UI is is uh, simple. In fact, that's People, customers tell us that it's like the simplest tool for that as a, from a UI UX perspective. But uh, there's a lot of complexity behind the scenes and the integrations and with metrics and metrics in general are confusing to people. There was a lot of, a lot of tickets that in that way. So the next decision I think was the help desk and it was Billy McDonald on our team said, Hey, we should build a help. We should build a, or not a help desk, a help docs. And I'm like, ah, really, do we need to do that? And, and he's like, cause we were basically taking one of our best people and she was the only one that could really pull it off. And, uh, and so she did that for three months and we could just see, oh, the volume of searches happening and the amount of time people were spending on the help docs and it was clearly a step in the right direction. I like, I was almost dragged kicking and screaming through this.
1: You know, it's funny when you look at the growth of a company, you often get the feeling that it was a well orchestrated master plan by some visionary CEO, but really how often do you think that's the case? In my experience, the idea of a visionary CEO is usually false. More often than not, there's a very methodical CEO who breaks down problems into constituent parts and then takes small risks time after time. Now, the reason this works, generally speaking, is because a CEO might get one decision wrong. But if it's a small enough bet, then it makes sense to at least try. After all, The upside of a small bet, it could be huge.
2: And then he he actually pushed on the next thing, too. Billy pushed us, hey, we should do chat. And it was about the time where... Like Drift was getting really popular and everybody, SaaS company was using intercom, if you weren't using intercom, you were missing out. And it was an obvious move for us to make, but I was worried about, like, oh, okay. If we're chatting with users all day, are we gonna be able to get to all these tickets or we have to double the support team in order to handle chat. I think I let them roll out chat for a very small segment of our users or something like that, test it. I told him, I'm like, if it works you, and we can handle the volume, you can roll it out more. And I expected that decision to be like. A month, month later, and three days later, he rolled it out to the local store base. <laughs> so like we weren't in inundated, thankfully, but it did prove to help solve questions quicker and keep users in the app. And I'd say over that time, over that two year period, I think our Sign up to customer conversion rate has gone from 2% to 3.5%, which isn't like gold standard for SaaS, but given that our solution is so it requires custom implementation in some sort, I think it's pretty darn good.
1: But the challenge isn't just scaling the customer acquisition when you're growing. No, if, if you're going to choose a business model that requires support and sales, you've got to scale your organization as a whole. And that, that's a heavy job.
2: I always knew from my HubSpot days that you needed to reach out proactively to leads. We Then we said, all right, let's build up our support team bigger, and they can handle chat. They can they can handle the basic tickets that aren't too technical, and, the, and they can prospect in their spare time. So now we're at like 72 people, and I think ha- well, maybe 40 of those people are in the sales, support, and marketing organization, and eight in marketing. So the rest is sales and support. So our support team's huge. We hire a bunch of people in support, that's where they learn. And then we're, we move them either into a sales role, an a customer onboarding role, or an account management role. Uh, and so fast forward to today, and we, we will have, like next quarter, we will have pretty much all the functions that a SaaS company that sells to say the mid-market or enterprise has, but we're still doing it at an average sale price of $150 a month. And we're doing it at relatively high volume of customers each month.
1: What impact has that had? Well, the answer is revenue growth. When Pete joined Databox in 2017, as we said, there was a couple of thousand dollars MRR. By the end of that year, the business was at 48K MRR. In 2018, the team began to build out the basic support function that the company had in place before Pete even arrived. And this marked the beginning of strong growth. 2019, end of year, 224K MRR. 2020 end of year, 309k MRR. This growth is great already. But what's obvious to me from listening to Pete's story is that the big inflection point is yet to come for Databox. While adding 30% additional MRR to your balance sheet in under 12 months is already a step change in terms of growth, is speaking with Pete you get the feeling he's just getting started
2: now I'm a data box and the CEO and I I actually, I have responsibility to make decisions. (laughs) That is my decision, but now it's harder than I thought it would be (laughs) because there's always just so many options. And I think that's the hard part for me is I want to do what the team is excited about. I also want to do what I'm excited about. I also want to do what's best for the business. And there's so many of those options and like evaluating what to do next and. Not just like next week or next month or even next quarter, but next year. That's the exciting thing, but also the really hard thing. What's the outcome that we can produce? How much revenue can we produce from that? We're actually at a point in our business where we're growing nicely, but there's a lot of things to do in order to scale faster. And so we're actually trying to find simpler things we can do to grow. And that might mean be a tweak to the product strategy. Uh, we certainly don't want to throw out, oh, we have a nice business that we're building. But we're now looking at, all right, how can we drastically grow our sign-up volume, maybe using product growth, or what other product can we build that's a similar average revenue per customer that can help us get our net dollar retention to another level. So now I'm looking at things that are maybe a little riskier. We might f- totally fail or flop trying to do it but can have some outsized results as a result of taking one or two of those risks.
1: If you ask industry people, they'll tell you that below a $500 a month sale price, you probably got to be self-serve. In fact, that's almost universally the case. But clearly, you're bucking the trend, Pete. You know, I know know from my own career that it takes guts to go against the status quo, Uh, but but what does it look like for you to do something counterintuitive? And you know, I mean here, um, add sales to a business point with a price like this. I guess I just don't understand how you both manage a high level of uncertainty with your vision while also running a company with a turnover of $5 million annually.
2: I think I always felt certain of every next decision. Yeah, I never had a problem with the next decision to invest more. The way we do it is so we're bootstrapping, right? But I also know that there's a massive growth potential here, not just with our current business, but the future business that we might be able to build. And so I know that investing in growth as much as I can makes sense. And, but with the caveat that I'm going to do it as smart as possible. And so I know that if I can build something once and use it over and over again, that's valuable. And and so clearly that's how product works, where you build a feature and there's some level of improvement and support that's required, but you build it once and you monetize it over and over. The same thing with help documentation, you build it once and you, you use it over, maybe not as many times as a feature. Same thing with launching a free service offering that's fully documented, like we can build that once And I can then use that to onboard a hundred or a thousand customers. I've always felt confident in those decisions and it's largely because we can afford to do it. We're, we're growing revenue faster than we're growing our expenses and we usually have a little bit of a 90 day lag there at this point. And we're so methodical about measuring everything that I know when things are or are not having an impact. Sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it takes six months, but we, we are measuring everything. And then I guess I'd have, I also have the Benefit of the experience of working at HubSpot where a lot of these types of decisions were made. And I read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I advise a handful of other companies that are doing similar stuff. I guess the experience helps in giving confidence to the decision.
1: And it's overcoming the challenges like this that makes Pete's approach to company building just really important. After all, it's not just about a race to win new customers through marketing. To hit a true inflection point, you have to align several key building blocks. You've got marketing, product, but also company. Now, a lot of people would think of that as a task that has to be done quickly, like they're doing it all at the same time. But Pete's been at Databox for years now. Does he feel like he's there yet? That's the question I keep asking myself.
2: This is a hard business to scale, and but now that we've built, a big portion of, it. and there's many things we'd like to improve about the current product and the current business and all that. But now that we've built all of these pieces, I believe there's significant innovation that we can do on top that types of things that people have never seen before and that will have, will in our customers' eyes, increase the value that we're delivering like tenfold. And it wouldn't have been possible without these building blocks. And I think if anyone will want to try to do what we're doing, they'll need to rebuild these building blocks, which will require significant resources. I'm super excited about what the potential is. Now, again, some of those are high risk, so I don't know if they'll work. But we've tested some things and we'll validate them a little bit more. But yeah, I expect our curve to increase next year.
1: I hope you see the thread now. There isn't a master plan in the way that you often see in Hollywood movies and Netflix documentaries. Now, most companies are built by people consistently showing up and solving the next problem with some common concept of a pain point that they're solving either for their customers or for themselves. They're breaking it out into new curves, second curves, by maintaining curiosity and thinking through problems methodically. That's how you hit a second curve. It's also why, despite the depressing opening to this show, I'll give you that, Charles Handy is an optimist. Just like Pete Caputa. Because an optimist is not a person who is always positive. They just believe that over time, things will get better. So bringing this back together, how formative was family encouragement to innovate for Pete?
2: Very formative, Yeah. yeah. It wasn't just my dad, my mom was... Always extremely supportive and uh, encouraging. And I was the second oldest of 30 cousins on one side and the oldest on another. So I had four loving grandparents, lots of aunts and uncles. My mother has eight, uh, seven siblings. And yeah, no, I had a a lot of nurturing in that way. Yeah. It totally led to an inflated sense of self, but, but that has certainly driven me to think, given me the license and, and encouragement to think creatively for sure.
1: So if you enjoyed that today and you want to do something about your B2B SaaS marketing, you should get in touch with us. You can do that by going to poweredbysearch.com and checking out our work with us page or you can browse the case studies and blogs that we have on the site. Now if you're not ready to do that, definitely say hi anyway. You can ping me on Twitter, I'm at IamMarkThomas, that's Mark with a C. Or you can ping our founder and CEO, Dev Basu, D-E-V-B-A-S-U. Connect with us there. Looking forward to seeing you again for another episode.